0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My left eye sees pollution, those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning, clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill, fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar to steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020. So spring break in Florida, Dave.
1: Yeah, I, I miss college students so much that <laughs> we decided to vacation with a family. Uh, but it wasn't quite as planned. We, we thought Miramar Beach was was tamer, not quite, you know, Panama um, City Beach, you know, that that wild scene. But it still has its kind of crazier aspects. Hence our later taping today on uh, Wednesday the 16th. We're supposed to tape at 9:15, and it's uh, 12:15. So
0: we we got that moving because uh, at four in the morning I got a text from you, <laughs> and I thought, uh oh that that can't be good. I was thinking you were still in Texas, so that would have been three, but three or four, not the hours of the night we're expecting to be exchanging texts.
1: Well, my, uh, my rap repertoire, you know, that just grew in leaps and bounds from about 10 nice. PM to three 30 AM last night. I think I, I know most of the, the hit rap music from 2022 and, you know, that's, that's life, uh, life in the fast lane with the, Okay. Spring breakers from Southern Miss and, and all the rest. Beaches here are great, though. I've never been to the Destin area. Where uh, Miramar is right next to Destin, and uh, beautiful. I mean, white sand beaches. Uh, yeah. the water is gorgeous. Tomorrow we'll take a take out a um a boat on the Gulf. So yeah, just really, it's kind of neat that way. But we probably should have come maybe late April. Uh, Would have been a little a different, different week, different. Right? Theme, you <laughs> Yeah, no one is. I can assure you one thing no one here is reading Aristotle's politics in the whole Destin, you know, Florida panhandle, uh, I think, than myself, I believe, uh, or talking about it. So it's good.
0: That that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, today we're starting book six. We've got the first few chapters of the book to talk about. So why don't you get us started, Dave? So
1: uh, here in book six, he's going to, I think, circle back again to cover this question of how you can get democracy to be at its best and how you can get oligarchy to be at its best. This has been a continual theme throughout his assessment of these two major regimes. They're the regimes that show up the most. So why not try to understand them from every angle that you can? So in in book one, he kind of introduces how these regimes are organized and he suggests that there can be various combinations that make one type of democracy different than another or one type of oligarchy different from another. Uh, some of the uh, different ways that you can mix these regimes rest upon how people within the regime deliberate. So how, what type of deliberative function is there within the regime? Uh, how do the law courts look? How are things judged? Uh, And then thirdly, what's the the mode of election uh, within the regime? So you can have a very aristocratic uh, deliberative element that is mixed with a more oligarchic uh, legal system, or more oligarchic uh, elective system. And and likewise, for democracy, you can have a very kind of constitutional means of deliberating, yet a very popular democratic means uh, of operating both your courts and the elections. So this is kind of interesting for us because way back when we were covering the Federalist Papers you see in many of the most famous Federalist Papers this question of what type of Federal Constitution, Federal Republic is being put into place by the framers of the American Constitution and they'll talk about uh, that some of the deliberative elements are this way, some of its elective elements are this way, there's there's a mixing and matching of different types to try to get that um, most perfect um, set of of balances between things. So um, here, that's the introduction uh, to the subject. And then I think the second part that is uh, worthy of taking out of this first chapter of book six is something he would mentioned previously. And that is that what people are doing within a given regime, what their occupations are, uh, where they lay their eyes each day also goes very much into defining how a regime works. So to take a step back and summarize what I just said, institutions matter, how they're organized, how elections come into being, how things are adjudicated, how things are deliberated upon, but it's the, the what makes up the people and what they do that mixing with those institutional devices gives us regimes as they are.
0: Yeah, I just think about maybe some examples that might help to illustrate some of this. So one of the advantages of of studying early constitutions, even colonial constitutions, as part of the American story, is that you begin to see maybe what Aristotle has in mind in some of these elements. So what's it mean to have a more aristocratic, deliberative element? Well. Maybe that's an easy one. We think about a property requirement in order to hold office, or a property requirement in order to elect people to hold office. Uh, That naturally uh, excludes some, uh, maybe many or or most, depending on the circumstances and how high those property requirements are. But but think about the courts. This is an interesting one that um, pops up in a few of the early colonial constitutions. Uh, Of course, today we think about the standard court practice. You have a civil trial or criminal trial coming up, you hire a lawyer and they're the expert, they help you prepare your case and off you go. Uh, but it was actually illegal to hire lawyers in early colonial governments. Uh, and why was that? What well, was an aristocratic element, right? You, you could you could plead your own case and you could have somebody in some cases plead for you but you couldn't pay them. If you were paying them, that was, that was inappropriate. Right? That was not gentlemanly. And so it obviously gives an advantage to those that are well connected who are well-educated in those areas. Or on the other side, in Pennsylvania, early Pennsylvania, I've mentioned this before, there was a rule that required that all legal documents be short and in English. And so you see the democratic quality there, right? Not, Not overwhelmed with long paragraphs you can't make any sense of. And of course, in English rather than Latin so that the average person can read and absorb them. So you think about those kinds of laws, which we wouldn't expect to show up anywhere in a constitution today, but, but helping to describe the character of the regime that emerges from, from laws like that. Yeah, I think, I think you know, Aristotle's pointing out here that, that these kinds of decisions and structures have an impact on, on who actually rules day by day and, and the overall character of the regime. And then you mix into
1: that the factor of the differences within the population of occupations practiced. Right. My guess is, right, 17th, 18th century, right up until the end of the 18th century, most individuals are farming. So farming has a distinctive quality. It requires a lot of you as an individual. It requires work uh, from the beginning of the day until the end of the day. Uh, Oftentimes, it would mean that you're working on your own land, and that's what you're worried about along with the weather. Uh, So you may have uh, some skills with regard to uh, getting equipment to be able to farm and being able to fix it. But at that time, you're not looking at an economy that is service oriented or that is um, uh, that is urbanized or urbanized to a great degree. There may be urban centers, but the great majority of individuals living in the country at that time live an agrarian lifestyle. And that probably plays into those institutions as well. Correct.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so as the economy diversifies, um, then different interests emerge. And of course, that's a good thing, according to Madison, to have that variety of interests that helps to um, reduce the influence of faction overall on, on the government. But yeah, I mean, a, a nation of farmers will have a different outlook on, on political life from a nation that has a, a industrial foundation to its economy or a service orientation like we have uh, in our own day. So, yeah, I think these are all factors that that Aristotle brings to our attention that you know we're so used to the the circumstances in which we live as sort of being normal, uh, that it helps to have these historical reflections that cause us to say, oh, wait a second, that's not necessarily normal. And there's there are other ways that that the scope of economic activity influence our politics besides just the question of um, you know, what regulations we will or we not approve or, uh, this healthcare plan or that healthcare plan or those kinds of things. Um, but there are other more fundamental ways that the character of a people shapes the character of its government.
1: Yeah, here on a much smaller scale, we can see in Aristotle's writings that he had seen his own type of modernization occur in the previous century to two centuries in the Greek world within the city-state, that uh, <clears throat> there was a time where most people lived um, in an ag- agrarian setting. But cities like Athens and Sparta, as they come into being, they, they draw like, within them uh, a population that is uh, now more likely to uh, be involved in trade and commerce and exchange. And, and with that comes a change in, in, in how people live, how, how they see flourishing. Uh, certainly, if you look at the golden age of Athens, for example, you know, all of these things like Greek tragedy and architecture and all the rest, are really born out of that movement uh, toward the city that occurred 2,500 years ago. So he can see that that similar transition that we might have seen, taking a look at the differences between 18th century America and, and present day America. Well, in books or me, chapters two and three of Book Six of the Politics, he then goes on to talk about a, a different um, influence that'll be very important in defining how a democracy operates. So here leading off part two of book six, he writes, the basis of a democratic state is liberty, which according to the common opinion of men can only be enjoyed in such a state. This they affirm to be the great end of democracy. One principle of liberty is for all to rule and to be ruled in turn And indeed, democratic justice is the application of numerical, not proportionate equality, Whence it follows that the majority must be supreme, and that whatever the majority approve must be the end and the just. So the essence of the democratic state is liberty. When that essence is applied to justice and the question of equality, Aristotle tells us that it leads the Democrat to think more in terms of numerical than proportionate equality. Yeah, and we've covered this before, right? One person, one vote, majority of the votes means that the thing is moving in the right direction. So there's not this principle of whether one individual's voice is a merited opinion or justified opinion. It's just that one individual has, has voiced it. The second element along these same lines of defining what is best in terms of liberty is the notion that a man should live as he likes. So numerical equality, one person, one vote, and that any individual ought to live as that individual deems good, just, et cetera. So you can see here how this opinion gives a lot of push to a democratic sentiment. It gives a lot of justification to a democratic sentiment but of course, right there's in the background, this issue, well, if you let the majority rule, what happens if the majority rules in an unjust way? Or if you let a man live as he likes, what if he chooses to live in a way, right? That leads to his dissolution rather than his flourishing.
0: I man, this is a great summary of the natural tendency of democracy uh, as well as the, the danger inherent in democracy. And, you know, this of course brings to mind some of the things we talked about last season with democracy in America. And the danger of allowing that majority to think of itself as having this godlike judgment over all things. I mean, the 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 restraint that works in both of these areas is to reflect on the fact that that this equality is a God ordained equality. This equality is is reflective of the fact that we are made equally in the image of God. Now, if that's the case, then the one who makes you. Uh, has some things to say (laughs) about how you want to live. Uh, And of course has designed you in, in a loving way with, with certain principles that would guide you toward flourishing. So it's not that the instructions are those of a harsh taskmaster, but, but rather a loving God who, who wants to create the conditions for, for human flourishing. And so if we hold on to the notions of democracy, this, this public liberty, that allows for participation in government and private liberty that allows us to direct the course of our lives, but we do so within the boundaries of a God-ordained order and recognize our our need individually and collectively to submit to that, then we can have all kinds of great things that emerge in that context. Uh, If we abandon that, if we think of ourselves as autonomous and that equality is somehow something that we've, we've somehow created for ourselves, uh, then, of course, these, these worse outcomes result. And, and we see all the ways that majorities can abuse minorities, and we see ways that individuals can act that are destructive of their own lives and the lives of those around them. And I think if you go back to this previous discussion
1: that we just had about occupations and lifestyles, without a Judeo-Christian heritage, the Greeks that didn't have that heritage, perhaps the best constraint against the use and abuse of liberty, both public liberty and individual liberty, was the very agrarian lifestyle that prevented you from taking advantage of public liberty to an extreme. If you're farming 12 hours a day, you don't have time to read Twitter. Uh, You're you're focused on the thing at hand, which is earning your daily bread, working for your daily bread. I think likewise, if, if you're working to survive, you may want to live as you like, but survival may be the very definition of living as one likes. Uh, whereas, if you're given uh, that much more freedom, uh, that much more um, uh, ability to, to uh, think through, okay, well, I want to do this. Do I want to do that? Uh, you may find yourself, you know, uh, spinning your wheels in your head rather than working uh, for your daily bread. So, it's a wonderful thing uh, to be able to have downtime, uh, to be able to have the ability to think about what is the best life, etc. But there are some problems that come along uh, with that liberty relative to liberty.
0: Yeah, you think about the kinds of instructions that Benjamin Franklin gave to his countrymen as, as poor Richard in poor Richard Almanac. And mm-hmm. and the two cardinal virtues of, of that work were industry and frugality. And these, you know, these are all over the place. And frankly, they're all over the place in the founding documents and even in some of the founding uh, constitutions of the states, you see the, the virtues uh, along with the classical cardinal virtues. And uh, you see this emphasis on working hard and then being thrifty and, you know, and, and, and so, uh, you know, a world of, of middle-class farmers uh, and, and merchants and tradesmen, the, that, that kind of world that we had in 18th century America it was a world where you need to be industrious and frugal if you're going to make, them. and you're right, there's a certain kind of discipline that that carries with it that, that puts some restraints, some natural restraints on behavior in the public square, as well as your own individual life and community with others. Yeah, and here you just look at well, the
1: change in American life from the 18th, uh, 17th, 18th to the 21st century, that we've gone from being a productive democratic society to being more of a consumptive uh, democratic society. And the shift that occurs within our souls when that which directs us each day is not the productive element, but what can I consume? How much can I consume? What type of perhaps conspicuous consumption can I have uh, with my free time, free money, uh, et cetera? So this fits in well with uh, the last chapter that we'll cover for today, chapter three of book six. Aristotle asked the question at the beginning of chapter three, how is equality to be obtained? And he talks here about the fact that that there are more that are poor than there are wealthy. So how do you create a regime in which you allow the more who are poor, the majority, to rule without undermining that element of justice that occurs within proportionate justice. There's going to be some level of inequality or injustice he argues in any um, anything that you bring into being, but the goal ought to be equality for equals and inequality for unequals. And that's, the, that's really the challenge when you're trying to bring in the right type of democratic equality. Uh, can you think of an example of, of this uh, that would shed light on this problem back then. And and then today, Matt.
0: Yeah. Well, I think about, you know, for the first hundred or so years under the constitution, uh, the answer to the question that they would have given the founders and their successors for a few generations was twofold. Uh, Number one, you create a legal regime that doesn't privilege the wealthy. So for example, Thomas Jefferson boasts that one of the first laws they passed in independent Virginia was one that, uh, ended entail and primogenitor. Uh, in other words, a law that divided fortunes equally at time of inheritance, right? The British rule is you entail uh, a fortune. And so it's, it's settled upon a certain firstborn male, uh, regardless of the circumstances. So you think about what happens in Pride and Prejudice, right? Where there's no Bennett son. And so the daughters are stuck in a bad situation because the estate is entailed away from them. And so Mr. Collins is going to inherit the wealth and sets up the whole course of the, of the story there. But you end that in America. And likewise, you end primogenitor. So there's no special advantage given to that firstborn son when you divide up a normal inheritance. And so it's divided evenly. What happens? Well, a large fortune becomes a small fortune pretty quickly if you've got three or four sons and you divide it equally. And so you're you're constantly in the process of creating And then dividing up these large fortunes. There's no permanent classes of of rich and poor. And the second element of it was offering opportunity. And of course, the way that worked that first century was primarily go west, young man. Right? There was always more land. And so while the frontier was open, if you're somebody who's struggling back east, you move 100 miles west. And maybe if you struggle there, you move 100 miles further west. And of course, there's all the challenges that go along with that, the conflict with Native Americans and, and you know, all the challenges organizing new states and all the rest. But, but that was the basic mode for preserving that economic equality. It's only when the industrial economy to take hold late 19th century that the question arises, can this be sustained some other way? Uh, because it's no longer enough to divide fortunes and provide more land for opportunity. The nation's filling up. The economy is changing. How do we move this forward into the 20th and 21st century? And that's that's a question I think for today. You know, we we see over the last 20 years, one of the problems that we're we're, we're struggling with in our politics is the economic stratification that's resulted from you know the importance of of high education uh, connections, right? The the emergence of this information economy has not had egalitarian consequences, and so I think we're still trying to figure out is is there a formula for recreating that opportunity society that you had at least for for the white male population throughout the 19th century.
1: And it's interesting that when you look at some of the educationalists in the middle of the 20th century, they they were considering what they called the paidea problem, which is what type of education would produce a type of character within uh, America's political community that would allow for flourishing as we became more democratic. And the key to many of those thinkers who were part of the thinking through that pidea project was that education would be the means by which that moral character would be produced and, and that, uh, that sharing in all things, uh, that equitable sharing in all things would be enabled. Uh, and of course, we don't see that happening in 2022. Uh, the amount of people who are going uh, to high school and graduating from high school, the amount of diplomas, is higher than it ever was. The amount of people who are going to college is higher than it ever was, but the disparity between those who have been able to do well in this economy and those who have not is, is growing. And I think that we don't uh, we we want to think through what a solution to that is. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it'll be very important that we think through it as Aristotle has in the beginning of Book Six by noting institutional factors, but also by saying that character matters and what we're doing in our lives and how we do it matters as well. So a good transition for next week in which he's going to continue to discuss what's the best type of democracy that can be produced. uh, What are those people doing within that democracy? And hopefully we can see some things in his commentary next week and and moving forward in book six that will be uh, well applied uh, to our lives in the 21st century.
0: Sounds great. All right. We're going to wrap up the show by returning to Tocqueville's crystal ball. So the NCAA tournament, uh, 64 team element, at least starts tomorrow. And so we're gonna make our picks for the final four. And since this is Mike Krzyzewski's last year, uh, unless he pulls a Brady on us, um, then we're gonna also make our predictions for where Duke ends up. What, what is the last game, last round that, that Mike Krzyzewski coaches, assuming it's not uh, a final four, or, uh, a final appearance in the cards for him this year. All right. So we're going to start with the West region where we have the number one overall seed, Gonzaga. You're going to take Gonzaga, Dave, or go somewhere in the direction?
1: I am. I think this is probably the the easiest of all the picks. Uh, I think that they're on a roll. They're playing out West. I, I think that they'll uh, they'll get by. They'll probably have a, a hard game uh, in one of these four games. But I think that they're, um, they're in a good position right now uh, to make it to the final four.
0: Okay. All right. I agree with you on that one. So... Uh, we'll see how far we have them going, but so far we got at least Gonzaga into the Final Four for a second year in a row. Out East, we have a defending champion Baylor as the number one seed, but also some other key contenders there. Who do you have in the East? I think
1: that Kentucky uh, is, the, is the team that makes it to the Final Four. Uh, they are very popular right now. In fact, I think a lot of people are picking them as the backup to Gonzaga to win it all. Uh, Baylor, uh, of course, a great year. Uh, I think that part of the problem with Baylor this year is they don't have the backcourt play that I think will be essential to a, a long tournament run. So I, I don't see Baylor advancing to the Final Four this year. I think Kentucky will will be there.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm I'm staying shocked so far. I'm going to take Baylor as well as the number one seed. I agree with you. You know, there's nothing that seems to predict success in the NCAA tournament more than senior guards, especially senior point guards. Uh, so you have to choose other teams uh, carefully if, if they don't have that in their profile, but I think that that success last year, they can build upon and at least get back to the final four for Baylor this time around. All right. In the South, uh, again, a number of uh, contenders there. This is probably one of the regions where there's been the most variety in, in the picks uh, moving forward. Who do you have coming out of the South, Dave?
1: Yeah, I think definitely this is the strongest of, of the four Regions, I, I think it's, it's exciting for us because I don't know what the tickets will cost, but that Southern Regional we played in San Antonio
0: hmm.
1: two, a week from this weekend. So the the last weekend in March, and you could have Villanova there, you could have Arizona, uh, Tennessee, and uh, I think that uh, Tennessee uh, will will pull off a surprise here uh, in that regional. I hope all three of those teams make it make it down here. I think that would be an amazing grouping uh, to get to the Final Four, but I'll, I'll take Tennessee.
0: Yeah. That'd be a fun ticket. You're right. I'm going to take Villanova another team that in recent years shows it knows how to get through the brackets. And so I think I'm going to uh, project them as a number two seed to get back to the final four out of the South. All right. Last region is the Midwest. Uh, Again, seems like a number of uh, contenders there. Dave, who do you like? I'm going to continue on with this SEC theme and, and pick
1: Auburn. So uh, that gives me three or four in the final four from the SEC. it's It's not the influence upon uh, where I'm living now upon my pick. I just think that it's pretty well stacked this year, which is incredible given its success in football as well.
0: Yeah, so, that's um, true. The two seed. Okay, very good. I'm gonna take Wisconsin because uh, I think it's you know big Big Ten has also been very strong this season, has a lot of teams that seem like they're reasonable contenders, no no real you know gotta be there kind of team but I I think there's going to have to be one big 10 that makes it through to the final four. So I'm going to take Wisconsin as the three seed coming out of the Midwest. This this
1: works out well. I mean, we'll be in great shape if we get to the um, final eight, because I think my Auburn team would be playing here. Wisconsin, perhaps. Tennessee would be playing Villanova. uh, And then uh, of course, Kentucky and Baylor, perhaps uh, in the East. I think the only thing we agreed upon is Gonzaga, which, which makes it fun.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll have a lot of interesting matchups as we as we go through this. Okay, so now, uh, before we pick our, our ultimate champion and our finalists, let's talk about Duke, Dave. Is, is this a Cinderella story? I'm just not going to the Final Four, uh, either, either of our picks. Uh, how far does Krzyzewski get in his last season at the helm?
1: I think they get to the Sweet 16. I think there they lose to Texas Tech. Was, okay. so a Sweet 16 loss to Texas Tech.
0: I've got them going out in the second round to Michigan State, uh, which I think could be a classic matchup. Maybe the next great coach to retire, (laughs) but um, yeah, I I just think there's too much pressure on this Duke team. I think they've shown that in that late season loss to North Carolina, the last one at home, the loss in the finals to Virginia Tech, very disappointing. You know, they've they've kind of missed out opportunities to to put the cherry on top for Shosecki, and I just have a feeling that's going to be the case. The tournament as well. He's going to try to take the pressure off them and do whatever he can, but I just don't think there's any avoiding the fact that they want to win for him. I don't think it's going to happen. So I think a second round disappointing loss to end a uh, really a great, of course, college basketball career. All right. So now that leads us with the last two picks. So we've got our finalists and then our ultimate champion who you've got. I have Kentucky
1: upsetting Gonzaga in the final four. Wow. Tennessee, uh, perhaps upsetting. I think they'd be on a roll by that time over Auburn and uh, a final uh, of Kentucky and Tennessee. And I looked back to when they played this year and in Rupp Arena, Kentucky had scored over a hundred points on Tennessee, which is amazing given how good Tennessee plays defense. But then uh, when they played in Knoxville, Tennessee, won and held uh, Kentucky to 63 points. So I just did the math. I averaged the two goals <laughs> from the two games, and I, and I come up with a Kentucky national championship over Tennessee, 85-78. to 78.
0: Okay. Well, sounds like a fun game. I've got Gonzaga over Baylor, so making the final for a second year in a row. Villanova over Wisconsin, and then Villanova winning to disappoint Gonzaga once again in the finals. Eighty-one seventy-four. 74 So a very similar score to yours, two different teams, obviously, uh, but both of us, uh, Gonzaga, not quite getting it done once again.
1: Oh, I love that pick. I mean, I, I love Villanova. It makes me think back to, I think it was four years ago, my wife was almost offered the position of director of university events at Villanova, and she asked, uh, well, how many days a week you know, are you on the road? And the lady who had the job said, well, during March, you're you're pretty much on the road. So you might, <laughs> you might have two or three nights where you sleep and you're in your own bed in, in, uh, in Philadelphia, but the rest you're going to be uh, hopefully uh, on the road. So she didn't choose to have that job. And so <laughs> hence, hence we're in Miramar Beach, Florida, you know, yeah. rather than following uh, Villanova around the country.
0: Yeah, I think I'd rather follow him on TV under the circumstances. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, you can contact us at Democracy in America today at gmail.com. We'll talk to you again soon.